We're in chapter 11 still. We're at 24 to 28. The title of the message is Unholy Home Improvement. Unholy Home Improvement. Luke 11, 24 to 28. Where do you see some of the stuff that has come out of... Um, remember, people ask, where do you get all this stuff? Well, I've made it clear many times. I've never had an original idea. So I'm not making any of this up. This comes from great teachers that I've had, from the, from the commentaries that I study. I've got some really good commentaries that, that, that help me get to the depth. And that's the goal. My goal is depth, not breath. God will grow the church in his time and in his way. I'm not focused on that. Mine is the, the depth. How, how deep can we drive the roots into the soil of the sanctified life. That's the goal. So it's the commentaries, it's Dr. Sam, it's Dr. Ron, it's all of these who have poured into my life to help me get to this place. And I'm a perpetual student. I am studying every week to bring you all that I can. But remember the goal. I can only give you a little bit. The goal then is to encourage and inspire you to take it home and and do some more study with you. But you're going to see some really neat things. been a lot of comments on this one this week. Because here's one of the passages that you might say after you read it. We're going to read it together, and you'll go, oh, boy, I wish that would have been more clear the way it was written. Well, you have to sometimes go below the surface. You've got to look at it in its content. Remember, how do you go to Scripture? You don't take a Scripture out of the passage and look at it and go, oh, that's what it means. You take it out and you look at it, then you stick it back into the passage, and then you look at it in light of the passage. Then you look at the passage in light of the chapter. Then you look at the chapter in light of the book. Then you look at the book in light of all of Scripture. And when you put it all together, then you get to the general understanding of what God wants you to know in the passage. That's the only way to understand this one. Because it probably could have been clearer, but God, in his perfect providence of inspiration to the writers, he wants us to go a little deep today. So we'll do that, okay? eleven twenty four to 28, unholy home improvement. Hear now the word of God. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest. It does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart, regardless of age or station in life. Speak now through this broken vessel. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than Jesus. Oh, God, we ask that you make this a word of salvation. We always expect people in the congregation And by way of the internet, as we live stream, we expect that there will be those who are unsaved. Make this a word of salvation. We pray, we pray for that. Father, make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds. There isn't a person here that doesn't have a burden. We all come inside carrying a burden. So make it a word of comfort. And for the tired and the weary and the heavy laden, make it a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. Come, now fount of every blessing. And clutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. 
Okay, we're going to unpack the passage. The three headings are real simple. The first heading is number one. It's called the passage. We're just we're going to leave the last two verses for the final point. We'll we'll see that, and we'll come back to the last two verses next week just a little bit. But today we're going to look at the passage briefly. Number two, we're going to look at a problem. There's a problem that, but the only way you're going to see it is if we get under the surface in the passage. And then finally, number three, the prescription. There's a prescription in that passage based on the problem that we have to work through. Okay. Let's take a look. We'll head out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, the passage. Luke eleven, twenty-four. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places. We'll get back to that. Seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. I want you to notice something very important before we start. Look at the last statement. And and read that in your heart again. Look at the last statement. I will return to the house I left. Didn't you say that this morning? Right? Whether you said it verbally or not, you said it. And what does that indicate? It indicates ownership. You expect to go back to the place that's yours. Now apply that to that passage. What is the evil spirit saying? I still own this guy. He's mine. Why? Because ownership has not been transferred. You're going to see why in a moment. This is really important to, to, to not miss this. He, he's, I'll just go back to the house I left. Why? It's still mine. Uh-oh. Arid places, let's just talk about that. You might, depending on your translation, you might see waterless places. In the ancient world, sometimes you have to go back into the context of the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was believed a place like a desert, a place without water, was devoid of God's blessing. Why? Because there was no rainfall, there was no harvesting, there was no crops. It just seemed to be devoid of, of, of the blessings of, of God. But there's also another aspect. There's, it's a metaphor for the barrenness of a demon kind of floating in the spirit world without a human home. One more point on the human home. We'll, deeper in a moment. A Christian cannot be possessed by, by an evil spirit, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But... The key in understanding this, the arid places and the waterless places and why the demon is kind of just floating and wanting to come back. The demons are looking for some kind of a host home, yes? Remember when Jesus drove the demons out and there was a herd of pigs? What did they ask? Send us into the pigs, right? At least send us there. Don't send us into the abyss yet. So they're always looking for a place to occupy. They can occupy... The place where there is no ownership by God. But when ownership has been transferred, then the door has been shut. And we'll talk more about that, okay? But that's the first verse. So there's some stuff in there we have to see. He, he feels like he owns this person. It's his house. Number two, in verse 25, it arrives and finds the house swept clean and in order. Well, what does that mean? Well, again, putting it in its context... To sweep clean means that the behaviors have changed. It's called behavior modification. Whatever this guy was and whatever he was doing under the influence of the evil spirit, now he's not doing that right now. He's, the house has been swept clean. And then to be put in order is talking about the moral order. There's a moral order to things. There, there's a way to, to, a systematic way to live, and that's what this individual's done. He, he, he's, you've heard the phrase, he's gotten himself cleaned up, yes? He got himself cleaned up. He was a mess before, and he got cleaned up. He swept clean and put things in order. 
we'll see why that's not enough. And then in 26, then this demon goes and gets a few friends, seven other spirits. Now there's going to be eight. Listen, more wicked than, than, than itself. And they go in and live there together. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. Seven other spirits in the commentaries. It's beautiful how that's laid out. What is, what is, what is the good Dr. Luke under inspiration trying to tell us on this? With these seven, seven you know is completion and perfection, right? Seven days of creation and the number seven. This is evil perfection. Perfectly evil. It's as evil as you could get. Far worse than it was on the front end. And we're going to see why. So that's, that's the passages there, and we'll get to the other two at the very end. I want to show you something. 2 Peter 2, 20 to 22. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again in tanks. So, so they've escaped. The demon is out, right? The demon is out. And again, they're entangled in it and overcome. They're worse off. Well, what does that mean? At the end, than they were at the beginning. It seems to suggest what we could presuppose about the angels. <clears throat> the fallen angels, man has fallen, the angels have fallen, right? And you have the angels that are fallen, booted out of heaven. Man was fallen. But God doesn't come after angels. Why? The, the scriptures don't tell us. We don't know why. But we know he doesn't. We, we could suggest that perhaps they had greater light. It ties into this scripture. Why? It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. So, so now you're sitting in church for 15 years. You know the way of righteousness, but you've never surrendered control to Jesus. You have never, you've never changed ownership in the home. And, and the scriptures say this is far worse in the end than it was in the beginning. You've had all of this light. So th- it would have been better to have not known than to have known it and then turn your backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. So, one other point in that passage that we want to make clear, okay? This is talking, two words. You've heard of the term reform. We can reform our behavior, we can reform our our thoughts and our deeds, and we, we can have our own personal reformation. But reformation is not regeneration. Unless you are regenerated, unless you have been born again, So what it's saying is this individual has never been born again. You can't lose your salvation. I know that you'll hear that sometimes, and you'll hear some 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 churches and preachers, and you gotta be careful on how you live. You you can't listen to me. (laughs) How can I make it as simple as possible without using any theological terminology? You didn't do anything to get saved, and you can't do anything to get unsaved. Got it? Imagine if you thought for a moment you could lose your salvation. Would you ever have any peace? Would you ever have any joy? What's the first thing that Jesus says in the upper room when he comes back after the resurrection? Peace. Shalom. There'd be no peace. I'd be looking over my shoulder every day. If I thought I played a role in my own salvation, guess what? You have someone else here on Sunday morning. I wouldn't be. I'd be at the beach. Because I know myself. I know my heart. I know things I think and say and do. If I thought I saved myself, I would be convinced that I'm not saved. How could I possibly, how could I think some of the things I think? How? Oh, God Almighty has saved me by his grace and apart from work so that no man could boast. 
So that's, don't miss that. You, you can't be saved and get unsaved, okay? So want to make sure that we're clear on that. Get to the end of it and you see the proverb. It comes out of Proverbs 26. Of them, the proverb is true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So what does that really mean? They're, they're comfortable with, with what they once were. Because why? Because really they've only, they've only changed their behavior. And you can only go so far with, with behavior change. It has to come from inside, and that's going to bring us to our second point. Here's the problem. I want to show you the problem. And, 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 it's, and it's going to speak to all of us because we all have to deal with this problem, okay? I mean, we have to go to Matthew sometimes to get a full-orbed view. You'll see passages that are the same, right? The Gospels are, the, are similar in many ways. The synoptics, the similar. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's quite a bit different. But sometimes you go to get another picture of the same passage. I want to show you in Matthew there's another word that wasn't in Luke, but it's important for you to see to help you understand the whole, the whole story. It finds Matthew 12, 44, same story, under unholy house cleaning, same, same story. It finds the house, here's the key word, unoccupied, uh-oh, swept clean and put in order. So we know what swept clean and put in order is. What is unoccupied? There's no transfer of ownership. There's no new owner. The original owner has left for a little while. House is empty. It's clean. It's in order. It's moral. That's not enough. Got to change ownership. Got to transfer what? What do we say? Transfer your trust from yourself to your Savior. Got to transfer your trust. That's transferring ownership. Why? When you're trusting in yourself, who owns you? You. When you're trusting in your Savior, who owns you? Savior. Right? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. It's the hardest message to keep teaching the kids, especially as we're getting ready to send them off to college. Oh, coach, I'm, I'm, come on, it's my body, it's my... No, it's not. It's not. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart, it's not yours. It's a gift from God. The unbelieving pagan who, who curses God, that breath that he curses God with is God's. It's all his. So the house is unoccupied, and this is what's setting us up now for this point. What's the problem? Again, you have to go below the surface to see it in the passage, but here's the problem. It's called Christian moralism. This is a scourge in the church of Jesus Christ today. So I'm going to show you what this means. It is really the false gospel that Paul was so concerned about for the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, beginning with the Spirit, are now you now going to complete this in good works? So, so there's this false gospel out there that says, listen, all you got to do is get cleaned up. All you have to do is start changing some of your behavior modification is what the Almighty is looking for. So notice this. Christian moralism, the false gospel, can really be put in these two, two statements. It's reducing the gospel to good works and not grace, and reducing the Bible to a book of do's and don'ts and not done. That's two statements that make sense. If you look at two categories of people in the church, right, you look at two camps, and we do that, but we want to be careful. We want to stop this camp thing now because we're in a different culture. We've got to come together, even these two camps. But if you have the conservative camp and the liberal camp, and they're Christian moralists, how do they live that out? Right? The conservatives, it's personal piety. Right? It's, per, it's personal discipline in changing your behaviors. How does the liberal live it out? It's social. 
That's all of the social concerns, the social gospel. So you put these two together. The Christian moralist has what? Is fighting what is inherently part of our nature. What do I mean by that? You're made in the image of God. So by nature, by birth, even though you're sinful, right? We're sinners. We're dead in trespass and sins. By nature, we have a moral conscience, yes? That's why when you speak into an unbeliever and he says, well, you know, truth is relative. And you do whatever you want. But then you say, well, would it be okay to, to, to abuse a baby? Well, of course not. Well, why? Of course not. Based on your worldview. Why? Well, because it's just wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Well, because it just is. Well, where does that come from? Well, you know where it comes from. That's why you have so much more to connect with an unbeliever with than you can imagine. Why? They're made in the image of God, just like you. They know what's wrong. They have a moral conscience. Now, you can look at some people and go, boy, that conscience seems to be seared. Well, that's happened to some people. There's no question. But we have a moral conscience. But then what happens in life? Parents. Uh, more of, there were more of them than little kids here. But parents. Parents. How do you teach? How do you teach moralism at home? And it's not really a bad thing. We did it. We were really good at it. Right? You reward good behavior and you punish bad behavior. So the kids start thinking in their minds, what? Oh, when I'm good, I get this. And when I'm bad, I get that. So we're, 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 we're teaching this, this moralism. And then, of course, the culture teaches it as well, right? The, the government, authorities would teach it, right? Be good. Obey the speed limit. Don't, don't walk on the wrong side of the room. Coaches, teachers, we all teach it. So it's something we have to fight. It's, it's, it's entrenched in us. But here's the key. To teach that at home is a good thing. It's a good thing for the government to have that. But here's the problem. When you take that understanding of what it means, that moralism, and then transfer it into what? To your relationship with God. And you say, well, that's the models that I've lived. No, 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 no. No, that's not the gospel. No, no. God's goal for you is not behavior modification. It's total heart and mind transformation. God didn't wait. Listen, how do you know that? God didn't wait for you to get cleaned up to save you. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for... Got it? Gets better. When you understand the, the scourge of, of, of Christian moralism and, and the damage that it does. So let, let's, let's keep going so we can see. 2 Timothy 3, 2, and 5. People will be lovers. Here's the key. You love yourself more than you love your Savior. And then here's the powerful statement, having a form of godliness. You want to know what the form of godliness is? It's, it's doing all the right stuff. Showing up at church, right? Having, having appropriate language. You know, paying your taxes. You know, putting in your time, talent, and treasure for, treasure for the church. Doing all, but what's, what's missing? Denying the power. What's the power? Having been transformed by the power. Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my what? You'll be my witnesses. It's not about getting cleaned up. That's coming. But God, God didn't send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to make you good. He sent his son to die on a cross to make you his. And by making you his, he makes you good. But you have to understand the, 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 the order to things. A form of godliness is, is, is bad if there's no power. Now, we appreciate that in, in an un godly world that God's restraining hand would be on people but in the end all of that moralism you're still on the road to hell and the problem is a Christian moralist will think that they're okay I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do so with that as the backdrop you ready 
Let me give you the quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones from The Banner of Truth. Over a half century ago, listen to these words. We must always remember that there are other powers besides that of Christ. You know that. Which can give results. You ever set a resolution, right? Right? Unbelievers, even we do it all the time. Personal power. There's there's power. There's that physical desire. We, We can do some things. It is possible for men and women to get relief from many of their ills and troubles apart from the gospel. Happens all the time. Millions of people are living like that. They're they're getting relief from the from, from the ills of life apart from the truths of the gospel. They're living in their strength, not the strength of, of, of Christ. They're trusting in what themselves. And why why is it why does it feel better? Why listen? It feels better as a sinner. You feel better being a, a moralist. Why? You're in control. If I do this, this, and this, God has to do this in return. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? And God asked Abraham to sacrifice. The question that could come out of that story, if you really understood it, would be this. Especially to new believers. Is there nothing God cannot ask us for? And the answer is, no, there's nothing. Because it's all his. So the elder brother, just want to give you that just very briefly. The elder brother. This is the heart of so many, 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 many in the church. And you you don't see it. You may never see it. You only see it when things don't work out the way that the elder brother was hoping for them to work out. Okay? Watch. And and, and if if I'm alive long enough, and we actually get to Luke chapter 15, I'll preach this to you. If not, someone else will be here preaching to you. But this is coming in 15, so in a few, but that could take years. Yeah, I don't know. Why? Because there's no rush. We're not, why, why are, listen, we're, we're not preaching practical, pragmatic sermons here. Why? Because those are the sermons for the, for the Christian moralist. How do I clean up my life? How do I have a better marriage? How do I do better with my finances? How, how, do, I, how do I change my behavior at the office so I can get a raise? Now, I'm not preaching any of that. We have no interest in that. We have to preach what? The holiness of God. We have to preach the super. We're not preaching from an imminent frame, the here and now. We're preaching the transcendence of the Almighty. This tells us the heart of so many in the church that you might not ever see. And that's why Jesus tells the parable. The older son heard music and dancing. Remember the younger son, if you're, if you're familiar with the story? You have a tendency to see the younger son is lost and the older son, everything's fine, right? Because the, other, the, the younger son, he's the irreligious one. He asked for his father's money, his, his, his third of the deal. I, wanna, I want my share. I want to go. And in other words, I, I, I want you dead. He goes. He lives the most irreligious life he could. But the elder brother seems like he's got it all together. But now that little scoundrel's back home. And now we're going to find out what's in the heart of the elder brother. The older son heard the music and dancing, and he asked a servant, what in the world's going on? Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf. The older brother was angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded. His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, look. Imagine saying that. In that cultural context, it's almost it's shocking Could you, to, to the father. Look. This is a patriarchal honor, shame, culture. And so Jesus is 
drawing us in. Look, you. I added that. That's All these years, I've been slaving for you. And for you. Who is he slaving really for? And never disobeyed your orders. Never. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. <laughs> but when this, ah, don't miss this. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother. His brother's dead to him. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, drives him as deep as he can into the mud, he comes home and you kill a fatted calf for him. What has he just demonstrated? He was working for himself. He wasn't working for the joy of the Father, for the love of the Father, out of thanksgiving for the Father. He was working for himself. And and the elder brother heart only comes out when things don't work out as you planned. why Why was it easy for him to look down on the younger brother? Because he was religious. So if you're religious, it's easy for you to look down upon the irreligious. Think about if you're highly educated. It would be easy. You could have a tendency to look down upon those who are not as educated. Think if you're well-disciplined. You could have a tendency to look down on those who are less disciplined. It, it's just what we do. We have categories. And when we find ourselves in a category, we have a tendency to look down on other categories. That's Christian moralism. That's the scourge in the church. Jesus says, we all, all of you have a tendency to this elder brother's heart. And you need to keep it in check. It's easy to miss it. But it always comes out when things don't work out. You know, the, the, and I have to deal often as a pastor in counseling meeting with a family or going to the house or something bad has happened and it's not uncommon for me to hear these words. I didn't deserve this. All these years I've served God. And this is the thanks? If this is the God that I've served, I have no interest in this God. They didn't understand the truth of the gospel. They were never preached the gospel. They were preached these pragmatic sermons on how to have their best life now. That's not the promise of the gospel. Do you you know that only in Christ, listen to me, only in Christ, everyone has the same goal. Wouldn't you like to live happily ever after? Only in Christ will the plot line of your life have a happy ending. It's the one thing that suffering can't take from you. The love of God in Christ Jesus. So the Christian moralist is constantly tipped upside down by the waves of challenge and the storm winds that blow. Moralism is a breeding ground for the dissatisfied, the depressed and the demanding hearts if you feel like you've earned God's favor this is the elder brother he knew that he had earned the father's favor he was perfectly obedient he looked down on the younger brother 
He was living a life of merit, not mercy, and it drove him mad. I want to share a story just very briefly here. 1984, you might remember the film Amadeus. Remember the film about Mozart? It was based, the film was based on Francis Schaeffer's play, the play that he wrote. And I want to talk to you just for a moment about the, one of the primary actors in the play, one of the primary focal points, Antonio Salieri. He was the contemporary, um, late 1700s. He's a contemporary with, with Moses, uh, with Mo, uh, Mozart. And he's a composer, and he's, you know, he's gifted in his own right. But before he launches out on his, at least the story, the way the story frames it, before he launches out on his career, he, he, he's brought into the, the church. He's brought into the church. And in that moment, this is the way Schaefer writes it in the, in the script, he bargains with God. And I want to show you the elder brother's heart. And listen, why, why would I share this with you, the movie of Mozart, why? You can find gospel themes everywhere. You find it in the movies, movies that we, we teach that to the kids. Pay attention for gospel themes. To the music that you listen, pay attention to gospel themes. Pay attention to everything. Why? It has to be everywhere. Why? We're all made in the same image, image of God. So those things come out. We find those themes. So now watch. Watch the bargain that Salieri makes with God. I offered up the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. He was one of the most influential composers in all of Europe. And he makes this bargain. And all is well until Mozart appears with greater skill. Creating a crisis of faith in the heart of this elder brother. Listen to these words. Remember, (laughs) he promised to be chaste. He promised to serve and give his life in service to God. He promised in a phrase to be as religious as you could possibly be, to deny every lust of the flesh and to live solely for the glory of God. That was his promise. But he was living for himself. And now this immoral Mozart. Amadeus, I don't know if you know, the the middle Wolfgang Amadeus. Amadeus means beloved of God. And now he's out of his mind to see this irreligious, immoral master far better than he could have dreamed that he would be. And now he's outraged. Ready? It is incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust. That's, that's religion. Denying all my natural lust in order to deserve, to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions 
even though engaged to be married and no rebuke at all. There's the irreligious. There's the elder brother and here's the younger brother. And now the true heart finally has a crisis of faith. Everything was fine as long as he was at the pinnacle because he was deserving God's blessing. Now this guy doesn't deserve, in his mind, he doesn't deserve God's blessing. This is merit-based. This has nothing to do with mercy. This is no grace. It's good works. And now, the final statement. From now on, we are enemies, you and I. And thereafter works to destroy Mozart. That's the heart of the elder brother. And it's everywhere. Let me make this clear. The moral, religious Salieri shows himself to be far greater in a state of alienation than Mozart. Why? He never saw his alienation. That's what's so poisonous about moralism. The elder brother never saw it. He thought it was fine. He was doing what he was supposed to do, but he was far more alienated than the guy that ran off because he didn't know. When you run off, you know you're estranged. You know that you're, you know. But when you're doing all the religious stuff, you don't know. It's doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. That's finally the prescription. As Jesus was saying these things, a young woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Here's the key. The woman, no disparagement here on Mary. She was blessed, highly blessed above all women to be chosen to to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. God incarnate. But watch what Jesus does. Watch what he does. The woman was focused on the flesh and the physical and the natural. But Jesus elevates it, as he always does. And he says, no, 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 no. We focus on the faith and the spiritual and the supernatural. Do you know there's a greater blessing than being born into your family? There's a, as great of a blessing as that is, for, for most, for sure. There's a greater blessing. And he says that, to be born into God's family. That's rebirth. You must be born again. So that's what he says. He wasn't disparaging his mother. He says, she's blessed, but there's a greater blessing. He elevated. He took it from the temporal to the eternal. It's the whole point of all of Scripture. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Don't don't miss this. When a man works, his works are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God. God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. There's the cherry on top of the Sunday. There it is. You trust in God. You don't earn God's favor because of it. Why are you doing what you do? So that God will bless you? You're blessed because you're in Christ. God's not going to love you anymore because you show up every week. And he can't love you any less when you miss. That's the whole point of understanding the gospel. It's it's not rooted in you. It's not our faithfulness to him. It's his faithfulness to us. That's what frees us. Living under the banner that it's finished. Now, we work, yes, and we want to be moral, yes, and we live by the Ten Commandments. Yes, yes, yes. But you know how many in the church believe they're saved by grace, but they stay in God's favor through the spiritual sweat of their brow? Do you know how many? 
Far too many. Far too many. How do we close? 2.14 in Titus, who gave himself for us? This is our God, our great God and Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, to be his own possession. Has ownership taken place? Has a transfer of ownership taken place in your heart? And then if it has, what happens? Eager to do what is good. Why? You're eager to do what is good, not because of what you're going to get, but you're eager to do what is good because of what you've already been given. That's the whole point. What you do flows out of a heart filled with thanksgiving. That's the gospel. That's when ownership is... See, you, you, you know. People say, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Check your heart. Why do you do what you do? I know some Christian moralists that they're having a bad day and it's raining at the end of the day and there's a thunderstorm. They won't get out of the car. Afraid God's going to smite them before they get in the house. God doesn't work that way. It's not, that's not the way it works. You're freed from that. But then in that freedom, what did Dr. Kennedy say when they asked him, oh, Dr. Kennedy, you preached the wonderful man. I'm free from the law. So what good is it now? What, what, why, why have it? He said, well, how would a Christian want to live? A true Christian would want to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And if you didn't have the law, you wouldn't know what's pleasing to God. So even though you do it imperfectly, your heart beats what? To please him. That's the gospel. That's freedom. Jesus came to set the captives free. And so many in the church have them bound up. The only way to, don't miss this. The only way to keep from being possessed by an evil spirit is to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. No Christian can be, can be possessed by an evil spirit. Why? Jesus said a house divided will not stand. I read you, I, I read you that acceptance speech from Abraham Lincoln last week. Under the house divided, it cannot stand. That's when it was a Christianized nation. He's, he's speaking the gospel. He's speaking script. A house divided. So if you are in Christ, there's no evil demon in you. That's freeing, is it not? But it also carries responsibility because what, what now can you not say? You can't say like Flip Wilson in 1970, the devil made me do it. Can't do that. Why? You're not possessed by the devil. Greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. Greater is the power that's in you than any power that comes up against you. Yes, we do things we ought not to do, but it isn't because the devil makes us do it. It's our own sinful hearts. I've met the enemy, and it is I. Thus saith Pogo. Transformed. This is the power of the Holy Spirit to renew the mind, recalibrate the heart, realign the will. From behavior modification to spiritual transformation. <clears throat> this is the gospel. Whether you're here or by way of the internet, this is the gospel. And this is the moment of invitation. You say, well, how do I know at this moment of invitation it's not a man-centered work that I'm not coming to Christ? I'll tell you exactly how. Your heart begins to beat for something bigger than you. Your heart begins to beat for a savior, and that savior is not you. Your heart begins to come alive because Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has breathed new life into you. By grace, through faith, you are now transferring ownership of the old home into the new home where Jesus now owns it all. 
And at that level of living, you have to realize, as Abraham did, there is nothing he cannot ask of you. By grace through faith, with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus says this to you right now. If you have never, ever surrendered ownership of your home, right now come to Christ. Transfer your trust to Jesus Christ. Trust in the blood of the Lamb. Trust in the words that he said when he hung on the cross. It is finished. And he finished it for you and for you and for you and every one of you by way of the internet. If you've never surrendered to Christ, today is a day of salvation. Come, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. We thank you for the power that is contained within it. We thank you for the gift, the gift of repentance and faith. Oh God, we pray right now that if anyone has never prayed any kind of prayer to receive Jesus, let them pray with me, every believer with me right now. Very simple. We're not saved by a prayer. We're saved by you. But these words we can pray. Oh God, I heard the truth today. I think I've been living a moralistic life. I, I, I thought I was in because of the stuff I did. I didn't realize that it was because of what you have done. So God, I confess right now of my sins. I repent of them and I ask that you come into my heart. Raise me from death to life. Change me from the inside out. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. And Father, now I ask that you would Give them the confident assurance that nothing will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Once yours, always yours. That is the power of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand and join us for the closing song?